This sixth edition of Christianity Today's podcast series, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, discusses the brand and how to promote yourself to become somebody. Then Mike Cosper, the narrator of this series, shared how Mark Driscoll associated himself with the gospel community to spread his fame globally. Mark Driscoll had a gifted team who knew how to build an analytically smart, algorithmic cyber preacher. They built his brand. And then once they established his fame into the stratosphere, the Christian celebrities and organizations would not ignore him. And so they continued to promote that brand. And that is what this episode is about that I'm doing here. Hello, everyone. I am Rick Thomas. You're listening to Life Over Coffee. This is episode 358, Response to the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, episode number six. You can read everything that I'm going to share with you in these show notes. Just go to episode 358. Before I get started, let me share just a couple of things. Uh, one, I did a a short video on why I do not recommend this series. And if you have time, you can jump out on YouTube to our YouTube channel and you can take a look at it. The title of that video is Why I Do Not uh, Recommend This Series. And I give uh, several reasons why in that video, as I have now gone through six episodes. I do find it troubling on many levels, and that leads to the second thing that I want to share with you. I'm not sure I am going to continue. Uh, I I anticipated that this series would be something else, and it it is something else. It's something else that I did not anticipate. Part of it feels dirty. Part of it feels uh, gossipy. Part of it feels woke. Part part of it, it it just so I don't know I don't know where I'm at on that I'm continuing to pray through it but I I do like going through something like this and making application to myself I like making applications to myself whether it's a book that I'm reading that I agree with or a book that I'm reading that I don't agree with, there's always application that you can make. And that is the one upside to this series as I am reviewing it. There's a lot of application that you can make. So I haven't landed the plane on whether I'm going to continue with it or not, and we'll just see. But I wanted to uh, let you know about those two things that I'm thinking that's running in the back of my mind. But please, uh, if you want to know why I don't recommend this series, especially to specific people, uh, then please jump out on YouTube and you can watch that a little short video. It's about six minutes that I did. All right, so here we go. Episode 358, Response to the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, Episode 6. Basically, this episode was in uh, two parts. Uh, one, the first part is about building up Mark Driscoll, building his brand, making him popular, getting him up into the stratosphere. And then the second part is about the community uh, with whom he surrounded himself with, or they surrounded themselves with him. It goes both ways. And so I want to talk about those two things, brand building and the community uh, that we use in this case to manipulate our brand. Mark Driscoll was in his 20s when he led the Mars Hill Church plant in Seattle, Washington. Later in this specific episode, number six, Mike Cosper will interview Josh Harris 
another youngster, others promoted too early, too soon. And as I was listening to this, I remember my pastoral epistles class in the late 80s or the mid 80s in Bible college where my professor talked about Timothy's young age, Timothy of Bible fame, and he added that a person should not lead a church or pastor a church until he is in his mid-30s. He was not making a mandate, but it was a suggestion. And I thought that that was wise. Even as a young person, I was not quite, I was in my mid-20s when I was in Bible college, and I thought there were wisdom in his words. Well, now I'm on the north side of 60, and I know there's wisdom in his words. And again, that's not a mandate. It is a suggestion. But there is something about promoting someone too early, too soon, especially when they are they are too young. And I... and. As an aside, I just got an email a few days ago from ACBC, the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors, and they are making a proposal for the membership to vote on in October 2021 at their national conference in Charlotte, North Carolina. And one of those proposals is is that if you're under 18 years of age, uh, then you can't be certified as a biblical counselor. You can take part of the training, but uh, you can't be certified. And I appreciate, I hope that's voted on, uh, affirmed, uh, because I, I appreciate the wisdom in that, uh, that uh, there is something to say about being young and promoted too soon or given too much responsibility when you just don't have the years ahead of you. You don't have the wisdom of experience. We need biblical wisdom, but we also need the wisdom of experience as we work through life biblically and the accumulation of growing in the Bible and applying the Bible practically through many different life experiences. Well, that seasons you, and that's why my prof in Bible college was talking about a pastor shouldn't lead a church until he's in his mid-30s. But the problem in our technological culture is that everybody has a voice. Uh, everybody has a platform, whether it's Facebook, a web blog, a, a website like ours, or a ministry like ours, or a local church, and there are virtually no gatekeepers. And many of us are just not humble enough or wise enough to ask others to evaluate what we say, to evaluate our blogs, the articles we write, the comments that we make on social media. We know stuff, but many are not appropriately suspicious of that knowledge. We want to hold what we know loosely. We want to uh, have our thoughts vetted. Uh, have people speak into our lives, but because of the technological age, you don't have to follow James's advice in one nineteen, where he says, "Hey, uh, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God." We live in an immediate, fast-paced internet culture where we can say what we want, when we want, how we want, and we can say it in seconds. And it is a ready-fire-aim mindset. And that's what happens in a technological culture where everybody has a voice, whether that voice is Mark Driscoll, me, or you. There is much for, for all of us to learn 
about how we communicate and communicating with wisdom. But Mark Driscoll was a young man, and he was promoted too early. And then he had a team that surrounded him that continued to fan that flame. And, of course, that's what this series is about. But speaking too quickly and too harshly is only part of the problem. Those are behavioral things. Those are things we say with our mouths. But there is a deeper insidiousness with those who want to promote their brands. It's called selfish ambition. This is one of the things that I think about a lot with our students in our mastermind program, the folks that we're training to do biblical counseling. I want to know, I want to know a lot about them, but one of the things that I want to know is why do you want to be a biblical counselor? Is it to spread the fame of Christ? Is it to help the help other souls, the two great commandments, love God and love others most? Is it to go and make disciples, the great commission, or is it a way for you for self-promotion? And I know that that type of insidiousness is in all of us because we are adamant creatures. And so if your aim is to become somebody, the problem is you will compromise who you are. You'll compromise how God made you. You'll compromise what he has called you to do. You will mold yourself into a, another image, an ma- image made by yourself. Selfish ambition is a glory-sucking path that obscures God while elevating the person. It's counter to John 3.30 where John the Baptist said, He must increase, but I must decrease. Being more enamored with results. And I talked a lot about pragmatism in my reviews of this podcast. They, they mentioned pragmatism here again in this episode, not in word, but as they explain how they were enamored with results. And we can be enamored with results too. We want our likes. We want our follows. We want the applause rather than being developed into the unique individual that God intended. And and if you want results and likes and follows and applause more than that, that being developed into the individual that God intended, then it cannot go well for anyone. The allurement of fame has subsided over the years with me as God is teaching me that I cannot be anyone but myself. I'm not saying that I am over the allurement of of fame, but this is a conversation that Lucia and I do have to have regularly because uh, in my world, uh, people uh, can appreciate, can love, love you, and, and, and thank you. And those things are appropriate, but with the appropriateness of the affection of other people, there has to be a monitor, there has to be a governor on my heart, and so it has to be a talking point in, in our lives. And, and what I don't want to do is to continue to say that you are bitten by the fame bug, by selfish ambition. You will start molding yourself into whatever you need to in order to attract those likes and and those follows and that applause. I have to be me. And this is one of the most significant things that I have learned uh, over the past 10 years, that I have to be me whether folks are interested in me or not. And I would appeal to you, it is worthy of your time to wrangle with the temptation to, quote, be somebody, end quote, other than who God wants you to be. Be who you are. Stand on who you are and continue to ask God to develop you into that unique person that you are. 
And so building a brand, pushing someone out there too soon, too early, and then that person is caught with the, the sin of selfish ambition, well, uh, you can push him out there, and if he begins to attract a following, well, then it's going to be wildly problematic as it was. And that speaks to the following as well. Part of brand building is your base. And Mike Cosper, the narrator of this series, he framed this part of the story in this episode. He framed it as daddy wounds is what he called it. Perhaps you have uh, heard that language. It's those craving souls looking for a father. And then he spoke to Diane Langberg, uh, a counselor who said, we all want a relationship with our father, talking about our heavenly father, but we can't see him, she said. So we take the one in front of us. There is truth in what Mike and Diane were saying, though they did roll it up into a bunch of psychobabble jargon that places the focus on the hurting soul rather than the redeeming Lord. I do not deny the hurting soul's truth claims, and I don't want you to to hear that. If a person has been victimized by someone, in fact, in the last article that I did, I wrote an article uh, just yesterday and did a podcast that that's out there now talking to teenagers, four teenagers specifically. And, and that was one of the points that I was making to them is that we all have been victimized. And so I'm not going to deny uh, the hurting soul's truth claims about being victimized, specifically in this context, talking about daddy wounds, your relationship with your father. I mean, we're all damaged goods sitting on the lower shelf of the grocery store. But when folks talk about wounds, this is a problematic way to talk about uh, what is wrong with us because they are almost always talking about themselves, what others have done to me. You can frame it that way. This is a, a directional discussion. When we talk about it, are we putting the accent mark on what happened to me or putting the accent mark on who God is? It is a directional discussion, a directional conversation. And typically, when you talk about daddy wounds, that that's how you frame the problem, well, then more than likely, you're going to be problem-centered, what someone did to me rather than being God-centered what Christ is doing in you. When you center your problems on the Lord, you look to Him for answers and a path forward. When you make disappointments about yourself, you will look for man-centered answers. Wounded theology is, a again, a psychobabble term, but wounded theology ties neatly into the self-esteem movement. Uh, because it puts the person right in the middle of the problem. It's person-centered rather than God-centered. And that will always lead to wrong solutions. For example, someone wounded me, and that's the, the quote, someone wounded me. This is how it could work out practically. My daddy was a mean person. I will find a replacement in Mark Driscoll. Mark talked about this. He said this explicitly in this interview. I mean, he knew his audience. He knew his base. He understood this desire about wanting to be connected to our Heavenly Father. 
he understood what people call wounded theology, and so he stepped right in there, and he had a base that was willing to be vulnerable to him because, again, uh, they uh, looked at the problem from a person-centered, human-centered, man-centered issue rather than God-centered. And so a person who is beholding to wounded theology would say something like that. My daddy was a mean person. I will find a replacement in, fill in the blank, and in this case, it was Mark Driscoll. Here's another illustration. I'm divorced and lonely. I will find another spouse. I'm not saying that it's wrong for a divorced person to marry again, but why you marry again and when you marry again and who you marry again makes all the difference in the world. But if you come from a me-centered, person-centered, problem-centered worldview, as wounded theology implies, you can make some wrong decisions because you're thinking more about yourself, what has happened to you, than what God is doing in you and through you. Here's another illustration. Excuse me. My parents were unkind people. I will find love somewhere else. And this is the teenager looking for love in all the wrong places. Again, the accent mark is on themselves. Now, alternatively, you could say it like this, someone wounded Christ. Now, think about this. Here are the two. Let's say these are your two options. You can think about and focus on someone wounded me, or you can think about and focus on someone wounded Christ. And that sounds radically different. For example, if you're thinking about someone wounded Christ, here's some questions for you to answer. Do you focus more on what has happened to you or what has happened to Christ because of you? That is a good question to think about. If you think more about what happened to Christ because of you, it will lead you to humility and brokenness before God and a desire to walk in paths of righteousness. If you focus more on what happened to you, uh, then, well, you will your love cup will continue to drain and you will find ways to fill your love cup because you're thinking more about what happened to you than what happened to Christ. Here's another question. Are you more controlled by what others did to you or what the Father is doing to you through Christ. This was a a hinge point. This was a turning point as I was working through losing my wife and my children in the early 90s. It was at this point right here where God made this shift in my mind where I became less focused on what others did to me and more focused on what the Father was doing in me because of Christ. I was focused more on uh, less on my wounds and more on his wounds. And when I made that shift and things began to dramatically turn, even though it still took many years. One final question. Are your circumstances shaping you into the image of the Savior? And so Mike Cosper brought in wounded theology, which is very popular in our Christian culture, and it does put the accent mark on self-victimization, what happened to you. It moves us away from a God-centered theology or Reformed theology, which is a God-centered theology, and it changes the dynamics and the trajectories of our lives if we are beholding to a wounded theology interpretive filter of how we think about what went wrong. And then, of course, Mike Hosper continued to conflate what went wrong with Mark Driscoll 
and Reformed theology. He continues to conflate those two things. Mark Driscoll is bad, and the conflation is is that Reformed theology is bad too. It's not a leap to get to that to get to that opinion about Reformed theology as you listen to this series. Mike seamlessly weaves the corruption of Sovereign Grace Churches, formerly Sovereign Grace Ministries. He continuously, he seamlessly weaves the corruption of Sovereign Grace, the hubris and abuse of Mark Driscoll, and Josh Harris's denial of the faith with Reformed theology. He just weaves all that in there together, and the unsuspecting or the unlearned Christian could easily conclude that part of the problem with these people and these organizations was their theology. And I've said this before in previous reviews, their theology was actually quite sound for the most part. It wasn't the theology. I mean, you can be a very bad person and have the soundest of theology. But during Mike's reform tangent, which he takes virtually every episode, he briefly interviewed Josh Harris. Now, there will be an entire episode devoted to Josh Harris uh, coming up. Mike called Josh a casualty of the Christian celebrity phenomenon. Now, this is a troubling statement. This is a part of the wounded theology mindset worldview. Again, you focus uh, what happened and what went wrong on yourself rather than who God is and what God is doing in you. And so this is how Mike framed it, that he was a casualty of the Christian celebrity phenomenon. And by framing Josh's downfall this way, he does make Josh sound like a victim. But Josh was not. Josh was an active participant in the fall of Sovereign Grace. Many of you know I was a a Sovereign Grace pastor for several years, and I've met Josh, uh, Josh on a couple occasions, though he would probably have no clue who I am. That's neither here nor there, but I'm saying that I'm very familiar uh, with this particular ministry because I was significantly involved in it as a Sovereign Grace pastor. But he was an active participant in the fall of Sovereign Grace, the cover-up of the abuse that went on, specifically at Covenant Life Church in Gaithersburg, Maryland, and he had a de- determination to build <clears throat> excuse me, to build his brand, which he continues to do uh, in the secular world. You see, Josh has never changed the way he was in, uh, prior to Sovereign Grace as a homeschool boy, uh, then moving to Sovereign Grace in 97, and then being part of it all of those years, and then walking away from the faith. He's never changed. He's always been about building his, his brand. And so when Mike says that he's a casualty of the Christian celebrity phenomenon, no, he's not a victim. Pride comes before a fall, not victimization. And Josh reveals a tell in this episode. A tell is 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 when you re- reveal like in, in when you're playing cards, you, a person will have a tell, and you can. It's a way. It's a quirk. It's something that they do that gives away something. And Josh reveals a tell in this episode as he describes to Mike Hosper what happened in the early days. Josh was reflecting on Lou Giglio of the Passion Conference fame, and and he said, I want that too. That's what I want too. Josh has always had an eye on the prize, which was his fame. Now, he's nice about it. Uh, One of the things about Sovereign Grace is that they have learned to practice humility. It is a skill. I'm not saying that everybody within that ministry is not humble 
but I do know that there is a a new kind of legalism that came up in the mid-aughts, and it is a gospel-centered legalism, and I've written an entire article about that. Now, maybe he was blind to what he was doing to himself because of his immaturity. Again, that goes back to my first point, too young, too early, too soon. But selfish ambition was there. And with nobody putting a governor on his ambition or holding him accountable, he rode his version of the Driscoll wave that eventually led to a similar and glorious wipeout. Mike continued to talk about this collection of of stars in the new Reformed movement. He talked about many of them. Uh, speaking to the Together of the Gospel fame, he talked about Moeller, uh, Al Moeller, C.J. Mahaney, Mark Dever, and Ligon Duncan, the four horsemen who, who started pretty much the Together for the Gospel conferences. I was at that first meeting at the Gaunt Hotel, the first Together for the, uh, Together for the Gospel conference. That particular year, Sovereign Grace decided to forego its pastor's conference, choosing instead to attend to, to get together for the gospel. And so we had a meeting the night before together for the gospel started, and that was our uh, pastor conference for uh, that year. But normally we would have a pastor conference that would go over, you know, like three days and, you know, all day long. But we decided just to have this one thing the night before together for the gospel because CJ wanted all of us there at together for the gospel. And it was during this part of the episode, the Christianity Today episode, where Colin Hansen talked about the flack that he received from promoting Mark Driscoll, unlike John MacArthur, uh, who I said in the last episode was against Mark being part of Together for the Gospel. And regardless of what you think about John, he saw the problems and he did not refrain from sharing his concerns about what should have been evident to everyone. Collins said that some of the issues were evident, but, quote, it would be interesting to go back in retrospect and consider what were all the different warning signs that we missed, that I missed, end quote. True, it would be nice to go back, and maybe that's what this series is about, but what he is speaking to He's speaking to his lack of discernment back then, or maybe his lack of courage, or maybe he had another agenda that was so strong that it pushed the obvious aside, or maybe his desire to grow his brand with his association with Christianity Today and his association with uh, the Gospel Coalition. My question is, why can't these folks admit their mistakes or, or admit their sins if they are sins? And this is one of the problems I have with this series. If you want to help us, then move from storytelling to guiding us into seeing these things, standing for truth, doing the right thing, separating ourselves from groupthink because you didn't do that. You didn't do that. And just rather than rehashing all this stuff, it would be helpful. And that's one of the reasons that I'm doing this review, to try to draw light to some of these things because Christianity Today is not doing it. When you hang with a person with problems, aren't you able to discern that something is not right? I mean, you you might not be able to label, at least not initially, what you sense about that person, but you definitely perceive it. You know that something is off with an individual. John MacArthur was like this. He said it. He called it. And he, he has no better advantage than the rest of us. We have Bibles. We read the Bible. We have the Spirit. We walk in the Spirit. We live pneumatic lives. We enjoy Christianity's benefits like discernment, wisdom, understanding. 
I mean, when I was part of Sovereign Grace, it was evident that something was wrong. Though I could not identify it initially, I could not put my finger on it, but there was something that was wrong. And then eventually it was no longer possible to ignore all the sinful ev- sinful evidence that was happening locally in our local church and extra locally in the ministry abroad. But if you're caught up in something more glorious to you than the fidelity of God's Word, you will remain blind to the damage that is happening in front of you. It's not wrong to ask questions about your suspicions. It is inappropriate to self-censor, to grieve or quench the Holy Spirit as the evidence is mounting before your eyes. I'm not suggesting that you could ever change things. I had little impact, little effect on Sovereign Grace Ministries. But you cannot be quiet. I've never been quiet about it, about what you observe. Now, perhaps you're mistaken. And maybe you must separate yourself from the person, the church, or the organization. That's what I did. But there need to be more people because you can sense it. You know that something's not right. And Colin Hansen, for example, in this episode is making a commentary on his lack of wisdom, maybe lack of courage, maybe lack of discernment, maybe his own selfish ambition. I, I, I don't know. But those things were evident because MacArthur saw them. Other people saw them as well, but they would not do anything about it. They continued to associate with him until finally they couldn't. But the damage was already done. The souls were already trashed. Uh, people were hurt. Families were were broken, and the demise finally happened in in 2014. This is uh, episode 358, the response to the rise and fall of Mars Hill, episode number six. If you want to read everything I just shared with you, please go to episode 358. If you want to talk about this, please jump on our ministries forums. They're free to you, and we'd love to chat with anything that is on your mind. Thanks for listening. You have been listening to Life Over Coffee with Rick Thomas. If you have a question for Rick, you can let him know by sending him a note through his website, rickthomas.net. That's rickthomas.net. Thanks for listening. Enjoy your coffee.